1 Kings chapter 16 and starting at verse 8. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, son of Basha, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Tarzah for two years. Zimri, one of his officials, who had command of half of his chariots, plotted against him. Elah was in in, in Tarzah at the time, getting drunk in the home of Arza, the palace administrator at Tirzah. Zimri came in, struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. Then he succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign and was seated on the throne, he killed off Basha's whole family. He did not spare a single male, whether relative or friend. So Zimri destroyed the whole family of Basha in accordance with the word of the Lord, spoken against Basha through the prophet Jehu. Because of all the sins Basha and his sons Elah had committed and had caused Israel to commit, so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. As for the other events of Elah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the books of the annals of the king of Israel? In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned in Tezar for seven days. The army was encamped near Gibbethon, a Philistine town. When the Israelites in the camp heard that Zimri had plotted against the king and murdered him, they proclaimed, Om- they proclaimed Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel, that very day there in the camp. Then Omri and all the Israelites with him withdrew from Gibbethon and laid siege at Tarzar. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the royal palace and set the palace on fire around him. So he died, because of the sins he had committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and following the ways of Jeroboam and committing all of the sins that Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. As for the other events of Zimri's reign and the rebellion he carried out, are they not written in the books of the annals of the king of Israel? Then the people of Israel were split into two factions. Half supported Timnah, the son of Ginnath, for king, and the other half supported Omri. But Omri's followers proved stronger than those of Timnah, son of Ginnath. So Timni died and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned for 12 years, six of them in Tizal. He bought the, hill, he bought the hills of Samaria from Shemar for two talents of silver and built a city on the hill, calling it Samaria, after Shemar, the name of the former owner of the hill. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit, so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. As for the other events of Omri's reign, what he did and the things he achieved, are they not written in the books of the annals of the king of Israel? Omri rested with his ancestors and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, 
succeeded him as king. Oh, our gracious Father, we thank you for the wonderful revision of your word. We thank you that your word is sufficient. It teaches us all we need to know to be right before you. It teaches us all we need to know about you, our God, how glorious, how wonderful, how gracious, how faithful, how wise, how good, how majestic, how pure you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for every verse of scripture. We thank you that all scripture... All scripture is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. That we might be equipped as your people. And we thank you that though there are glorious passages of scripture, yet there are also those difficult passages. Those passages which are a little bit obscure, which we may find difficult to understand what we can learn from these verses. So we pray that tonight, by your spirit... You would open our eyes to understand some of the truths of your word, that you would change us, that we would truly be men and women of your word, that you would help us to subject our lives to your word and not your word to our own wisdom and understanding and prejudice or tradition. Change us through your word for your glory. Amen. So what did you think? of our text uh, for this evening, 1 Kings uh, 16, verses 8 uh, through to 28. What did you make of it? You see, it seems, uh, with the description of the reigns of these three kings of Israel, of Elah, of Zimri, and of Omri, it seems as if Israel, the northern kingdom, that is, of uh, Israel, uh, is in self-destruct mode. Isn't that right? What with one king who has a drink problem and another king who commits spectacular suicide and a third king who struggles to gain, to gain control over his nation, well, it sounds, doesn't it, just like a messy episode um, from our own War of the Roses or from the French Revolution or something like that. For Israel, the northern... Um, country kingdom of Israel really does appear to be heading inexorably downhill towards its own self-destruction. Until that is, it does level off a little uh, with a new capital in Samaria, as we read, and a stable, somewhat stable dynasty in the house of Omri. But again, what did you make of it? Well, if nothing else, this passage is actually right bang up to date. It really is. For this passage is all about three kings. The title is Three Kings, We Three Kings, but it's not a Christmas message. You may have thought it might be, but it's not. It's about three kings who sought just what this world, even today, what this world always seeks. They had all those ambitions, all those desires, all those longings. At the end of the day, they all proved simply fruitless. For what do we have in this passage we read? What do we have? First, a king who sought amusement. Second, a king who sought advancement. And third, a king who sought achievement. Just like the people of this world. 
Just like you and me, if we're honest. Well, let's look at those three kings in turn. Firstly then, a king who sought amusement. Now this king is Elah, the son of King Baasha. And the account of Elah's reign is found in verses 8 to 14 of our text. So what do we discover about this king? What do we discover? That Elah didn't last very long as king. And in a way, that isn't so surprising, is it? It really isn't. For as we see within verses 12 and 13, King Baasha's whole line and dynasty, of whom Elah, Baasha's son, is the second king, King Baasha's, Baasha's entire dynasty is actually under God's judgment. So it's not surprising, is it, that King Elah lasts two years before he's assassinated by Zimri, one of his officials. However, what do you think is the most striking feature of King Elah's reign? What, what stands out, as it were, in the author of First Kings' account of him? Or to put it another way, what does the author of this book particularly want us to notice about this man? Well, I think we see what this is in the second half of verse 9. If you have your Bibles open, have a look at uh, 1 Kings 16, verse 9, the second half. Elah was in Terza at the time, getting drunk in the home of Arza, the palace administrator at Terza. In other words, this drunkenness is what characterizes the man. This is what sums up his life. This is his, this is his legacy. This is how he's remembered. Or as Dale Ralph Davis so colourfully puts it, this man seems to have one passion, turning himself into a besotted fruitcake. Therefore, he's a drunk. And his main aim in life is to drink himself under the table. However, what, what an utter disgrace that is. Particularly for a king, a ruler. One who is to show by his life how we should live. He is to be an example. He's a king, he's a ruler. For this is certainly not what any leader ought to be about, is it? In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 10 tells us the very same thing. Listen to these words from that chapter, Ecclesiastes 10. In fact, these words could almost be written just for King Elah. Ecclesiastes 10 verses 16 and 17. Woe to the land whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed is the land whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. You see, this king, King Elah, this king is preoccupied, isn't he, with his own pleasure. He just does not seek the good of his people, only the satisfying of his own desires. But though he sought amusement... Instead, he found judgment and death. And he discovered that seeking pleasure for its own sake 
is futile and meaningless. It simply does not, and it will not, deliver. Listen again to the book of Ecclesiastes, this time from chapter 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? So Elah is a king who's preoccupied with drink. But what a lesson that is for us today. Ask yourself. Ask yourself, what are you yourself preoccupied with? Or to put it another way, how would your own life be summed up? What's your legacy? How will you be remembered in future generations? How will you be remembered? You really loved your football, perhaps? Spent all your time in front of the television, perhaps? You can name all the great composers of the last 300 years, perhaps? You were always active. Doing something, perhaps. You could shop till you dropped, perhaps. So what's your preoccupation? You see, this world chases after such hobbies, such pleasures, such amusements. But it ignores the only and lasting satisfaction there is. A satisfaction which is found only in a living, exciting relationship with God. So is that you? Is it? However, this this preoccupation, perhaps you're thinking that's all very well for the non-Christian. But actually this preoccupation could also be a serious danger for Christians too. It really can. Now what do I mean by that? Well, you too can become preoccupied with your hobbies, with your interests, with your amusements, to the detriment of your faith. For you could tell us about more about steam trains or whatever. I'm trying to think of something neutral, but you know what I mean. You could tell us more about steam trains than you could about gospel truth. You wax lyrical about your football team rather than about the good news of Jesus Christ or the stamps you collect. But what madness that is. And why do you so quickly seek after and desire that which is only second best? Why is that? Why is that? For, all, for we all need to be like King David, don't we? In Psalm 16, verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Or in Psalm 63, verse 3, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. You see, with Jesus Christ, we have everything. Without Jesus Christ, we have nothing. 
So are you preoccupied with secondary things? Or are you, first and foremost, just like King David of old, are you taken up with the wonder and the glory of who God is? That's the challenge of King Elah. But let's move on to our second king, King Zimri. Now this king is described for us in verses 15 uh, to 20. And this king is a king who sought after not so much amusement like King Elah, but advancement. For Zimri wanted to be at the very top of the pile, didn't he? Now Zimri was in the army, and there in the army he plotted King Elah's downfall, presumably to make himself king of Israel. Therefore when the the army was in Gibethon, many, many miles away, near to Philistine territory down in the south, and Zimri was in Terza, where King Elah was drunk, Zimra went in and killed Elah and then succeeded to wipe out his entire family and friends. It was widespread slaughter. The blood was flowing everywhere. No one was spared. So Zimri declared himself king. And Zimri was now exactly where he wanted to be, at the very top of the pile. He was the king. Got there. However, it didn't last very long, did it? You see, Zimri had made an elementary mistake. For Zimri had forgotten to gain the rest of the army's support for what he'd done. Indeed, it seems that this coup and this assassination of King Elah by Zimri was just a small venture by a mere handful of men, Zimri and his supporters. But that the rest of the army, well, they knew nothing about it. So as a result, the rest of the army decided that one coup deserved another. They proclaimed Omri their commander, their general. They proclaimed Omri king. They marched on on Terza to sort out Zimri. And they laid siege to the city. And when Zimri himself realised that all was lost, that the city was indeed falling uh, to the Israelite army, well, Zimri killed himself in grand style by setting the royal palace ablaze. What a spectacular way to go. (coughs) Zimri was toast. However, though, though that may be, far more importantly, far more importantly, Zimri's reign also highlights for us the fleetingness of advancement and status and position within this world. For what do we read? In verse 15, look at verse 15. What do you read? Zimri reigned in Terza for, not seven months, not seven weeks, seven days. Seven days. Now what a telling statement that is. For Zimri hardly had time. To wash the blood of King Elah off his hands and to enjoy his deeply sought after status and position. Seven days. 
So what does that teach us? Well, it teaches us two things. First, notice exactly why King Zimri's success was so short-lived. We see the reason why at the end, the very end of verse 18, and then into verse 19. So Zimri died, why? Because of the sins he had committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and following the ways of Jeroboam and committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. It was more of the same, wasn't it? After seven days, there was no change within the country. So after just seven days, Zimri was found guilty and condemned by God after just seven days. You see, seven days may only be a short time, but it's long enough to show your true colours. Seven days may only be seven days, but they are also seven responsible days before God. God, you see, desires and God deserves our full allegiance every moment of every day. Not just Sundays, not just on Sundays. Not just when you're feeling up to it. Not just when you're not tired or you're not grumpy. Not just when others are behaving nicely towards you. No, no. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength every moment of every day. That's the first lesson. Secondly, this this short reign also shows us, doesn't it, so clearly the emptiness and the fleetingness of success within this world. For the end of the day, such success means absolutely nothing. Now that may say, sound very shocking to your ears, but think about it. Think of those great empires of this world. The Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Roman Empire, the British Empire, the Russian Empire. Where are they now? Well, think of those great leaders and pioneers of the past. Think of Cecil Rhodes, who actually had a country named after him. What success. But not now. No longer is it called Rhodesia. Indeed, I remember a person who was a security guard at a place not far from here where I once worked. Now, this person simply worked uh, to pass the time, for he had sold his own business. He didn't need to work, didn't need to be a security guard. He simply worked to pass the time, for he had sold his own business, employing 5,000 people, no less, uh, just a few years earlier, and had retired. And so he now, so was he now? Was he now respected and admired? Was he? No, not particularly. In fact, most of the people there where I worked, most of them, if not virtually all of them, didn't know anything about his past. I only got to know it through talking to him and was utterly taken aback. And we see exactly the same within this country across countless old people's homes 
where people who were once somebodies are now treated as nobodies. Treated with disdain and disrespect. We really do live, don't we, in an ageist society today. In other words, down the line, any position of status within this world, which we may have, will one day count for nothing. It's all an empty dream. So what's the lesson? Don't make idols out of worldly status and position. What matters is your relationship with God. So that's the lesson of King Zimri. Now let's move on to our third and final king, uh, King Omri. You probably all not, many of you may not have heard of King Elah and King Zimri, but I'm sure you've heard of King Omri. This was the king who sought achievement. Now, Omri's story is recorded for us in verses 21 to 28. And of course, Omri's claim to the throne was much more secure uh, than Zimri's. For unlike Zimri, Omri had been chosen by the army. And nevertheless, Omri did have a rival. Tibni, son of Ginnath. And for four years, there was civil unrest and political uncertainty within the land. But then Tibni died. We're not actually told how or why he died, whether it was murder or illness or old age, just that he died. However, with Tibni's funeral, Omri is finally crowned king of all the northern kingdom of Israel. So what about King Omri? What sort of king was he? Well, his reign is described for us within just six verses, verses 23 to 28. And most of that description is just the usual run-of-the-mill formulas. In other words, he became king, he reigned 12 years, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Other events from his reign are found elsewhere and he died. That's it. Indeed, only one verse, verse 24, tells us something different from that norm. The King Omri also moved the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel from Terza to Samaria, probably for both security and commercial reasons. But that's it. That is it. There's nothing more, is there? So effectively, King Omri's reign can be summarised as follows. He built Samaria and he did evil. And there's very little more than that that we can say about him. However, King Omri, to the world is actually very, very different, isn't he? You see, to the world, King Omri was a very powerful ruler. For not only did he establish a new capital in Samaria, his son Ahab was married to a Phoenician uh, princess, no less, thereby securing a political alliance with that country. And he threw his military weight around for many, many years uh, in the nearby country of Moab. He established a dynasty that lasted nearly 50 years. And that is a long time for those days. 
And to cap it all, to cap it all, for the mighty Assyrians, he was the main man. Because the Assyrians, in their record, records, the Assyrians, for the next 100 years or so, the Assyrians consistently referred to the northern kingdom of Israel as the house of Omri. He was the main man. Isn't that amazing? To the world, Omri was a great ruler, achieving great things. But to the author of 1 Kings, and more to the point to God, Omri only gets eight verses. And his reign can be summarised as he built Samaria and did evil. But you see, that's the point, isn't it? That's the point. Omri may well have impressed this world, but he doesn't impress God. For what matters is not what he achieved, building a new capital on a hill in northern Israel, but whether he did right in the eyes of God. So what do we read? Verses 25 and 26. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. And what a lesson that is for us today. What a lesson. For ask yourself, what do you take pride in? What you've done or how you behave? Which is it? For Omri built a new city, but he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So perhaps you've done many things for the Lord. Perhaps you've taught a youth group, perhaps you've preached a sermon, perhaps you've written a book, perhaps you've run meetings, perhaps you've built, been involved in building buildings. But perhaps also your heart has been full of bitterness and hate. Perhaps also your heart has been lacking in love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and acceptance of others. Do you think then that your achievements are of any more value before God than Omri's? Do you? Well, think again. Isaiah 66, verse 2. These are the ones I look on with favour. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my words. So are you humble? Are you contrite in spirit? Do you actually tremble at God's word? Or are you looking to what you've done? Your achievements, your work, the effort you've put in for God. Which is it? Which is it? You see, God doesn't need you. Or anything. Anything that you do for that matter. Nothing. God doesn't need you. 
Yes, in his grace, God does work through his people, but he doesn't need us. In fact, what an utterly arrogant thought that would be, that God needs us. Therefore, what God desires from us is not what we achieve, but humility and love and Christ-likeness. For it's those things which are of real, lasting value. And it's certainly not what we accomplish. Indeed, if we look to our achievements, then those achievements have effectively uh, become nothing more than the worthless idols of verse 26. That's all they are. And actually, that idolatry is the worst sin of all. Why do I say that? Because it's placing, isn't it? It's placing something, whatever it is, amusement or advancement or achievement, whatever it is, it's placing something before God in our affections and in our desires and in our longings. In other words, it's not giving to God first place. It's not giving to God our full and wholehearted allegiance. It's not giving to God what is his by right. It's not loving God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. Now that's idolatry. And idolatry is a first commandment offense. You shall love, you shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 5 verse 7 tells us, of course this world just cannot see. Can't see, can it? What all the fuss is about. Why can't we do our own thing, people say? Why can't we satisfy our own desires? And why should God care so much what we live for? But no. No. God has made us. Don't you see that? God has made each one of us. Therefore, everything, absolutely everything we have comes from his good hand. And he's also made us to love him and to know him and to serve him. He has certainly not made us to serve ourselves, has he? That's for sure. Therefore, ignoring God and his grace towards us is the biggest violation of relationship that there can be. The biggest. It's the highest offense of all. It's effectively shaking our fists in the face of God, the God who has given us everything we have. Now, do you realize that this is true of you? That you've offended God by your ignoring of him? Do you realize that? So what can you do? Well, as we've just seen, you can't actually do anything. For you cannot earn God's approval by achievement or by any other means. No, all you can do is seek God's approval through Jesus Christ, his son. All you can do is unite yourself by faith alone to Jesus Christ, the one who has lived 
wholeheartedly and fully and perfectly for God. The one who hasn't selfishly sought for himself amusement or advancement or achievement. For if you look by faith to Jesus Christ, then you can know that all your wrongdoing has been dealt with once and for all by Jesus' death for you. And that all his righteousness and goodness, though totally undeserved, is now credited to your own account. Now that's the forgiveness, full, free and forever, which God in his kindness offers to you. Don't be someone who seeks after amusement or advancement. Or achievement. Be someone who seeks after God. By faith in Jesus Christ. All you need to do. Is simply accept. Him. By faith. So what's stopping you? Amen. Let's pray. Oh our gracious father. We thank you for. These three kings. Not that we should emulate their lives but what a warning they are for us forgive us that it's so easy for us to seek after these things to seek after pleasure to seek after position to seek after making a name for ourselves oh lord help us to be those who see that what really matters the only thing that truly and matters the only thing that lasts forever is to know you through your Son. Pray that that may be true for each one tonight, for your glory. Amen.